Well, once again, church, it is so good to be with you again here on Sunday morning. It's a joy to gather together, to sing to the Lord, and now to hear from Him in His Word. And again, if you are new or near, newer here at ECC, we are so glad that you're here with us this morning. So this morning, we continue our series entitled, Being a Jesus-Centered Church. Being a Jesus-Centered Church. This is our fifth week in the series, and so thus far, we've looked at four different topics. We began almost a month ago now looking at the Bible, and we saw there that when we're a Jesus-centered church, it means that we listen to Jesus and we hear from him in the Bible. And then after that, if you remember, we looked at the gospel. We looked at what Jesus Christ did for us so that we could be reconciled to God. Then the week after that, we looked into prayer, and we saw that prayer is just the natural result of those other two things, that we're reconciled to God in the gospel, we have a relationship with God, and we hear from him in his word. A result of that is we now speak to him in prayer. And then fourth and finally, last week, we looked into what it means to live like Christ. And we talked about that, or we saw that as we're talking about living like Christ, what we're really talking about is living in accordance with whom we were always meant to be as those made in the image of God. We saw, if you remember, that living like Christ isn't mainly or merely about morality or just being good. It's much bigger than that. It's about living in accordance with whom we were, with how we were always meant to be, our original purpose as those who show forth what God is like, images of God, lives of holiness. And if you remember, we saw what that means is we live lives of less sin and more love, all like our God who is perfect without sin, and who is perfect in love. And if you remember, we ended last week by saying that not only is that what we're called to do, but living like that is where we find our true happiness. So that's our series thus far. We've covered really the main topics of what it looks like to be a Jesus-centered church, the Bible, the gospel, prayer, and living like Jesus. And we could really call these the four key aspects of Jesus-centered Christianity. Because these four aspects cover mostly everything, and from there we could extrapolate other things that we could talk about. For example, evangelism, if we wanted to have a whole message on evangelism, evangelism is nothing more than loving somebody and so sharing with them the gospel so they can have a relationship with God and hear from God in his word and speak to them, him in prayer. And church is really nothing more than us gathering together to do these things and worshiping God together. Or think of more practical things like how we should lead our families or how we should live at work. In both of those instances, it boils down to we should be people who love the word, who love the gospel and share the gospel, who pray and try to live lives like Jesus, lives of less sin and more love. So those are our last four weeks. But as we know, as we're still here in our series, our series isn't done yet. And so we have two more topics to cover, and there's a good reason for this. There's two more things that we have to talk about if we really want to be Jesus-centered and live the way that Jesus intends us to live as Christians. As for next week on Palm Sunday, we'll end our series, and we'll discuss the purpose and the goal of all this stuff. And the purpose and goal of all of that, as we'll see, is going to be the glory of God, which is what we live for and which really is the global goal of all of history and all the world. So that's next week, the glory of God. But this week, we have another really important topic. So if next week we're considering the purpose of everything, this week we're going to be considering the how of everything. 
This week we're going to talk about how it is that we become Bible-loving, gospel-loving, prayerful people who live lives like Jesus. We're going to talk about how in the world that can happen. And the answer is in our sermon title, and it was referenced multiple times in the passage that Steve read. It all happens by grace. By grace. It's God's grace. And so next week, the word will be glory. This week, the important topic is grace. Grace, which is the how we're saved. It's how we're saved. And grace, which is also how we continue to live lives like Jesus. A Jesus-centered life must be a life centered on God's grace. And spending a week talking about this matters, ultimately because Jesus, overall, over and over, made it clear that it really matters. Again, we're wanting to be a Jesus-centered church, and multiple times, as you can imagine, Jesus emphasized grace, and so did his apostles. But perhaps the clearest one sentence where Jesus emphasized this idea can be found in John 15. You don't have to turn there. But in John 15, you might know the context, Jesus is discussing with his disciples what it means to abide in him and what it means to bear fruit. Or to say it another way, he's discussing with his disciples what it looks like to to be in a saving relationship with him, abide, and what it looks like to live in accordance of that relationship, bearing fruit. And in such a context, he strikingly says this. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. I'll read that again. And in such a context, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And again, he's talking about just abiding in him and bearing fruit in context. So he's saying that apart from him, we can't have a saving relationship with him. And apart from him, we can't live a life that accords with that relationship. Apart from him, we can't do any of it. And that, as we see today, as we'll see today, is essentially what grace is about. Apart from God's grace, we can't be saved. And apart from God's grace, we can't live in accordance with that salvation. So that's why we need this week in this series. We need to really know that. And all these things we've talked about such far, so far, and and embracing the gospel and our Bible reading and our praying and our living like Jesus, we can't do it at all apart from Jesus. We can't do it apart from God's grace. Which brings us to our text here in Romans 5 and 6. So the reason we chose this text is because here at the end of Romans 5 and the beginning of Romans 6, we get a helpful picture of what God's grace is in the Bible. And it begins, though, at the very beginning of Romans 5. And although this isn't technically part of our passage, just look with me quickly at Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. Because it introduces our topic really, really well. And here's where you see, uh, here you'll see where we get the title for the sermon. So this is Romans 5, just verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there you see it. We are saved through Jesus, and then we stand in this grace in verse 2. So that means that we're not only saved by grace, we know that from other places like Ephesians 2, we often understand that, but then also God's grace, Jesus' grace, is now where we stand, where us Jesus followers stand. We reside in, in this grace. 
And so that then leads us to the big question that we'll be asking today. So we know that we can't do anything apart from Christ. We know that we stand in grace. But if we're really going to understand what this means, what we really need to be asking throughout this morning is, okay, well, what is grace? What is grace? It's a word we use all the time, but what is grace? And for that, we'll look at our main passage in Roman, end of Romans 5 and the beginning of Romans 6. And these two chapters, Romans 5 and Romans 6, will also provide our outline for the morning. So overall, though, the easiest way to define what is grace, to answer the question, is simply to define the term. And grace in the Bible, as you might know, is just basically God's undeserved favor. It's God's undeserved favor, treating us better than we could ever deserve. That's just all the word means. Grace is undeserved favor towards us sinners. So that's the overarching answer, which you've probably heard before. But then as you read the Bible, and especially the New Testament, this undeserved favor of God, this grace of God, consistently takes on two different aspects. And one will correspond to Romans 5, and the other will correspond to Romans 6. So what are these two aspects? Well, first, in Romans 5, we're going to see that God's grace is his abundant, undeserved goodness toward us sinners in salvation and Christian living. His abundant, undeserved goodness toward us sinners in salvation and Christian living. That will be Romans 5. Then after that, second, in Romans 6, we'll see that God's grace then takes on the aspect of its undeserved empowerment that enables us to live like Jesus. So first, in Romans 5, it's God's undeserved, abundant goodness towards us sinners. And then Romans 6, it's his undeserved empowerment that then enables us to live like Jesus. So that's our brief outline, our brief definition of grace. But as always, I never want you just to take my word for it. Instead, we're Bible people. And so let's dig now into Romans 5 and 6, and I want you to see this for yourself. So we'll start with the end of Romans 5 again. We are in the last two paragraphs, verses 15 through 21. And again, we're asking the question, what is God's grace? And here at the end of Romans 5, we're going to see that it's his abundant, undeserved goodness toward us sinners in salvation and in Christian living. So we begin just with the first paragraph. It's a bigger paragraph here, just verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So I know perhaps a lot of that might sound confusing, but in brief, you might notice what Paul is doing here. He's, he's basically explaining the gospel. He's showing how sin came into the world through Adam's trespass, through the one man's sin, And then he's also over and over explaining what Christ did to take care of that sin. And you can see this in just a few words in that paragraph. We'll just point out a few words. First, you might have noticed that word trespass. Over and over, Paul talks about the trespass. And this was Adam's crossing over of the good line that God had set. And it's what brought sin into the world. 
So Paul in that paragraph talks about sin a lot. But then also notice Christ's response to that sin in the paragraph. It wasn't that Christ came to give Adam a second chance. It doesn't say that God now has made it that those of us who are like Adam now can have a second chance and try not to be like Adam. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't Jesus came to just give you a second chance. Instead, in that paragraph, what's the contrasted word to trespass? We probably noted, noticed it scattered throughout as well, the word grace. The contrast to trespass is grace. See grace in verse 15 multiple times. You see it in verse 17, the abundance of grace. So God's response to this trespass, the sin in the world, is grace. But not only that, you probably notice there's another phrase that we're scattered throughout even more than the word grace. It's mentioned five times in those three verses. And it's the phrase, the free gift. The free gift. You see it for yourself in verse 15, it's mentioned twice. Then in verse 16, the free gift's mentioned twice again. Then once more in verse 17. And so here's our takeaway from all of this, from just this paragraph to start. What is grace so far? Well, it's God's undeserved goodness in response to Adam's trespass. And specifically, it's a free gift. Adam sins, we're sinning, and God comes in and gives us, quote, the free gift. And so thus far, grace, what we've seen, is just something that's totally undeserved, coming at us as a gift. It's something that we can't earn. But now let's continue on to our second paragraph at the end of Romans 5, because here we'll see grace explained even more. So this, we'll start with just verses 18 and 19, if you want to look down. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So let's go briefly through that. But again, you see the explanation of the gospel. Adam's trespass led to condemnation, verse 17. It made us sinners, verse 18. But Jesus' response, his righteousness leads to justification, verse 17. And he makes us right in God's sight in verse 18. We go through quickly through that because that finally now leads us to the two final climactic verses of Romans 5. And this is where we'll focus on to see grace here, because here we're going to see grace show up twice. And pay attention, though, because then the word grace here takes the subject of two different verbs. So grace does something, once in verse 20, and then another thing in verse 21. And by seeing what grace does, we'll learn a lot about grace. So start in just verse 20. So what does grace do in verse 20? Look at your Bible, see it for yourself. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So notice what's happening here. First, the law of God comes in and it increases our sin. And this means the more we understand and read the Bible and see God's instructions, the more we realize how much, how much we do not measure up. The more we look at the law, the more our sin in this way increases. But then... Notice in that same verse, what does God do in response? We could imagine that God in response to our increasing sin would run further away from us since he's a holy God. 
But instead, look again at verse 20. The law came in to increase this trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what's God's response to sin increasing? Grace abounds all the more. And now that's beautiful because as sin increases more and more, God's grace abounds in response. He sees the increasing measure of our sin increasing and increasing and God's goodness not only matches that sin but abounds over all of that sin. Or to say it another way, the law shows us our sin and and what we deserve. And, And let's be honest, each of us know that we're like this. We know how crooked our thoughts are, how selfish we are in our bones, how much we disregard God. And we might then think that God's only response would merely then be, well, okay, that's how, that's who you are. Well, then you get what you deserve. Or if we don't think that, perhaps we could think that God's response would maybe just say, just tell us to, to try a little harder to be maybe a little less trespassy, a little less like Adam, and then we could think, if we're trying our best and sinning a little less, then we could think that God might come in and show us favor. But that's not the gospel. Instead, what is God's response to our increasing, clear, ugly sin? Abundant grace. Overflowing favor, surpassing goodness. He faces our sin and he responds to it with abounding grace. And to bring this home a little bit more, we could use the picture of it being a free gift that we saw in the previous paragraph. We could think of it this way. God's response to your and my increasing sinning is giving us a massive gift in the gospel and then continuing to give us gifts and gifts. And we're spitting in his face when we sin and he turns as we're spitting in his face and he decides to give us gifts. And that is grace from verse 20. He abounds in grace. But that's not all the Bible says. Paul continues explaining grace in verse 21. And again, he gives another verb for what grace does. So now let's read verses 20 and 21 together. Starting in verse 20 again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice how verse 21 starts, so that. So why does God respond to our sins by, with his abounding goodness? Why does he give us gifts in response to our sin, verse 21, so that instead of death, grace might reign? And so that's our second verb. Grace abounds and it reigns like a ruler. God's grace abounds in response to our sin and grace reigns instead of death. And here's what this means and why it's so beautiful. So the Bible's essentially saying here, that if it wasn't for God's grace, what would define us and what would define this world forever would be sin. Would be sin. And with sin would come the corresponding reign of death, 
Meaning if sin increased and we merely got what we, des- what we deserved, the rulership of death would be what would continue. Because that's what sin deserves. And with it would come the sorrow, the sickness, the confusion, the sadness, the loneliness, the pride that sin brings. But as you saw in verse 20, the gospel shows us that God's grace abounds more than all of our increasing sin. So now, because of what Jesus did for us, we know that what really reigns, what really has rulership, now in us, God's people, and on this world forevermore, is his grace. Not sin. Sin doesn't reign anymore in us. Why? Because God's grace superabounded that massive weight of our sin when Jesus died for those sins on the cross. And so now with sin dealt with for his people, death no longer reigns. Grace reigns. And so God's grace, not our sin, is what defines us, his people, now. And because Jesus dealt with sin, it's what's going to define this world, grace, forever. So that's Romans 5. What is grace according to what we just read? It's God's free gift of goodness and love in response to our increasing sin. It's his goodness that abounds over all of our sin and it reigns instead of sin and death now and forever. That's the first aspect of God's grace. But before we move on to the second aspect in Romans 6, I just want to do two things. First, I want to make sure we really apply this to ourselves And then second, we'll turn or we'll look at one of the stories from Jesus' life that I think will really help bring this home. So first, let's make sure we apply this. And to be honest, after reading, I'm sure what you just saw, after reading what we saw in Romans 5, the application is pretty simple. And it's this. We need to realize, as you just read from these verses in Romans 5, that all that we provide to what's going on here is sin. It's sin. That's it. That's the application. We need to realize that all we provide to the picture of God's salvation and God's grace is sin. And this is important because there's no hint in these verses or in the Bible that we, by some sort of living, first help overcome our increasing sin. Nor is there any talk about having to first be some sort of person, a certain type of person, and then we can embrace Jesus, and then we can embrace God's gift. It's just not there. Instead, in Romans 5, all it says is that we sin and sin and sin, and it increases. And what does God do? He abounds in grace over and above that sin. And so the Bible is clear, our grace abounds, our sin abounds, but God's response to our sin is abundant grace. And here's the crazy thing. This is true when you first embraced Jesus and became a Christian in the gospel, and it's still true after. This is why grace is not just an entrance into Christianity thing. It's where we stand in as well right now. We're people saved by grace and we're people living by this grace day in and day out. And so this does mean that the more you and I sin, the more God's grace abounds. The more sin increases, the more God's grace super covers our sin. 
You sin, God's grace abounds. You sin, God's grace abounds. That's the formula that he has provided. Because of what Jesus did in dying for all the sins of his people, if you trust him and you're part of his people, then when you sin, it's another avenue, another way for God to display his grace. And so the application, once again, is to realize we provide nothing except our sin. That's it. It's all we provide. Or to use a quick analogy, we, we provide the, the black backdrop of the canvas. Well, then God comes in and paints over all of our backdrop with bright and beautiful colors. And we can take, we can keep taking our paintbrush of sin and painting dark spots on all the beauty that he has painted. But if we're part of his people, because of what Jesus did, the Bible tells us that God will always respond to our smears of sin by painting over it again and again and again and again, more bright and beautiful each and every time. And that, brothers and sisters, is grace. Which brings us to a story from Jesus' life that really brings us, brings us home. This is in Luke 18. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read the story out loud. This is the story of people bringing children to Jesus, one you've probably heard before. But specifically, Luke uses the word not for just children, but as you'll see in the ESV, it's the word for infants. So people are bringing infants to Jesus. So this is Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. The Bible says this, Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them saying, let the children, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So you might have heard the story before. People are bringing infants to Jesus and his disciples rebuke the people for bringing the infants. But Jesus turns and rebukes his disciples for rebuking the people. And why does he do that? Because infants, according to Jesus, are a picture of those who are in the kingdom, are a picture of those who are gods, who are saved. And here's why this is so helpful for us to consider this morning. To be honest, often this this story is taught a little bit incorrectly, although with good intentions. Often it's taught in our modern times that Jesus is showing us here that we need to be tender like children or trusting like children. And and although that idea might be in other places in the Bible, that's not the point from the story. That's not really what the Bible's getting at. Instead, we know this because in Jesus' day, and, and really in our own, when someone thought of what an infant brought to the table, it wasn't that an infant brought some level of trust or some level of innocence. Instead, infants brought to the table nothing except for literally their helplessness helplessness. And so the disciples are upset in this story because these little infants are brought to Jesus and they have nothing to contribute to Jesus and his ministry. But notice, that's exactly what Jesus loves about them. It's not that they're trusting him, they're infants. It's it's not that they're innocent. Jesus knew just as well as you and I do that infants are still born in sin. Instead, Jesus uses the infants as an illustration of his love toward those who are genuinely helpless. And that 
in a nutshell, is a picture of God's grace. We have nothing to offer except for our helplessness and our sin. But as helpless and as sinful as we are, God's grace comes in and he holds us in his arms. And not only that, but where our sin and our helplessness increases, his grace abounds more and more. And so we can cry and struggle and fight him while we're in his arms, but that will only make him hold us tighter. And that, brothers and sisters, is God's grace. So that's the first aspect of God's grace in the Bible. It's his abundant, undeserved goodness toward us sinners in salvation and in Christian living. It's him treating us and loving us and responding to our sin consistently way better than we could have ever deserved, both when we're saved and in our Christian lives. So that's what we saw in Romans 5, but that now leads us to Romans 6. In Romans 6 here, we see the second aspect of God's grace in the Bible. And we alluded, it to, we alluded to it earlier. And the second aspect of God's grace is that God's grace is his undeserved empowerment that then enables us to live more like Jesus. And if you're tracking, this is kind of interesting in itself. Why, we might wonder, might this undeserved goodness then be also used to talk about God's enablement? And we'll see kind of why in Romans 6. But before we read most of Romans 6, let's just first notice how Romans 6 begins. How Romans 6 begins. Because it helps us to see if we've kind of understood grace this far. Because remember, when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapter distinctions. Those were added hundreds of years later. So, so Paul ends by talking about grace abounding and grace reigning in chapter 5. And then his next sentence is Romans 6.1. So let's read what he says in Romans 6.1. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And so here we see where what we've understood in chapter 5, where it could lead. Because if we really understood what we said in chapter 5 about our sin increasing and God's grace always abounding, superabounding over our sin, then perhaps, as Paul says here, it could lead us to say, well, then why not just do whatever I want? I mean, it could really lead us to start thinking, I mean, why not just keep sinning so that God can keep showing me more grace? Or to use the analogies from our last point, why not keep painting dark brushes on my canvas of sin so that God can come in and keep filling those spots with more bright and beautiful paintings? Or why not intentionally cry in his arms so that he will hold me tighter? And these really are the sort of questions that we might start asking if we truly understood grace. I mean, grace should, in a weird way, make us so amazed because we really believe that whenever our sin increases, his grace will abound even more. So that's first one. So what is the answer? I mean, why doesn't grace, abounding grace, lead us to just go and live lives of sin? Well, that's what we'll see as we continue chapter 6. We'll see two main answers. First reason why it doesn't lead us to sin is in verses 2 through 13. And then the second reason we'll focus on is in verse 14. 
So let's begin with the first reason in verses 2 through 13. And again, as we read this, we're asking, why don't we just sin more so that God's grace may abound? Why doesn't grace lead us to do that? So Paul gives the first answer in these verses. This is a big chunk. We're going to read 2 through 13 of chapter 6. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Stop there. Now, if we had more time, we could dig further into these. But even as a quick reading, you probably noticed Paul's first answer to why grace doesn't lead us to just go on and sin. It's pretty simple. It's if we've embraced the gospel, embraced Jesus Christ, we're alive now. We have true life. We have died to sin. We have new life in Christ. And so we don't want to go on and just keep sinning. We have true life. So that's the first reason for why grace doesn't lead us to sin. Because we have new life now. It's a real thing. We're alive. But that then leads us to our second reason, which we'll focus on in verse 14. It's our last verse for, of Romans this morning, and it's an important one. So again, we're asking, why doesn't grace lead us to sin? We're alive is the first answer, but now let's read verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So why wouldn't we just go and sin and just do whatever we want? Because we are now under grace. You see it there. Sin will have no dominion over you because you are under grace. And so think with me about what the Bible's saying here. This is really important. Apparently, you see it for yourself in verse 14, apparently being under grace, which means living under the influence of grace, the, the reign of grace, being somebody who's underneath, who's constantly receiving the constant goodness and grace of God in response to all of your sin, all the stuff we saw in Romans 5. Apparently being under that leads us to live in such a way where sin will have no dominion over us. And so why would this be? How does that work? Well, it's because if we really understand Romans 5 and the beauty of God's grace, if we're really under that grace and we know it, it will astound us, amaze us, and it will change us to want to love and live for that God of grace. It has to. I mean, grace, it's that amazing. It's that 
reigning like a ruler. It's, it's that powerful. It's that enabling. And so if you're following, now you're seeing why the second aspect of God's grace, namely God's grace being summed up as God's enablement, enablement makes sense. God's goodness in treating us so much better than we deserve, always, in salvation and Christian living, the grace from Romans 5 is then what leads us and motivates us to live for him. As Christians, we are constantly under his grace. He constantly treats us better than we deserve, and that empowers us. It stirs us to then want to follow him and live more for Jesus. And so putting these two aspects of grace together, the grace that enables us to live more like Christ, lives of less sin and more love in Romans 6, is the same goodness and grace of God that we saw in Romans 5. Both are grace. Both are God's goodness that are abounding to us sinners. It's his goodness that abounds always over our sin, and it's his goodness that then as a response to that enables us to live like Jesus. So that's God's grace from Romans 5 and Romans 6. And perhaps you're seeing now why it's so crucial for us to understand this. God's grace is him treating us so much better than we we deserve, and God's grace is what enables us to live like Jesus. Both we need, and both are his grace. And that's why grace is the how, as we said earlier, of everything we've talked about in our series thus far. God's abundant goodness is how sinners like us are saved, And his abundant goodness is what enables us to live more like Jesus. From beginning to end, we are people who love and depend on God's grace. We can't be saved on our own, and we cannot live the Christian life on our own. We need God's grace. And so now as we come to a close, I want to end about talking like grace like this, about uh, talking about grace with just one final warning and one final encouragement. So a warning and then an encouragement. And first, a warning. And I know it might sound strange to talk about a warning when we're talking about such a beautiful and amazing thing like God's grace. But I want to include this because the Bible often includes this when we're talking about God's grace. And to not include it in a sermon like this could prove to even be unloving. And a summary of this warning that comes throughout the Bible can be found in 2 Corinthians 6.1. You don't need to turn there. But after hearing about grace this morning, now hear what the Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians 6, 1. The Bible says this, Working together with God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So there's the warning. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So even though God's grace is his goodness that superabounds any sin, apparently, somehow we can receive it in vain as nothingness to us, as something that really doesn't have worth. So what could that mean? What might it mean to be receiving God's grace in vain? Well, we see this scattered throughout the Bible in some places, and we also especially see it happening in history and even today. People can hear messages like this. They can hear about God's grace in the gospel, God's grace in Jesus, God's help in Christian living. And then we can, people can decide to just use it in a way where it doesn't lead any closer to Jesus. It doesn't lead to the gospel. Instead, it can just lead people to just go ahead and assume that they can do whatever they want. 
where you can hear messages like this and it can lead you to just justify certain sins. Or it can lead you to just kind of say, all right, God is gracious, so it doesn't matter if I trust Jesus. It doesn't matter if I have a desire for God or if I love God. It doesn't matter. God is gracious. And all of that would be receiving the grace of God in vain. It would be taking such the most beautiful thing in the universe as God's grace and twisting it. And so the warning for all of us this morning after hearing a message like this from God's word is to not let that happen. I've been praying for this morning and praying for you all that my prayer is that no one will leave here and use the grace of God to run further away from God. If we really understand and love the grace of God, it will amaze us. It will change us. It will make us cling closer to him, to Jesus, to the gospel. It will not make us go further away from him. So that's the warning. That's the warning. But now we'll end with an encouragement. And for this, I just want to finish by reading a couple verses from Ephesians 1. Again, you don't need to turn there. But this is a really important paragraph in the Bible that I'll be reading from because Paul, if you know, in Ephesians 1, is giving big theology and he's giving here really the ultimate reason for why the world exists and why we're saved. And in that context, he mentions grace. So here's what the Bible says in Ephesians 1. The Bible says, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So why, according to that verse, are we saved? Why are we adopted in Christ? To the praise of the glory of God's grace. So it's all for God's praise. It's for God's glory. We often get that. But notice that's not just what the Bible says. It says all this happens to the praise of the glory of God's grace. So what's the purpose of everything according to there in the Bible? So that God may be praised, so that God may be glorified, absolutely, but even more so, salvation, our life, this universe exists to the praise of the glory of God's grace, so that God's grace may be put on display and loved. And so here's our final encouragement to those of us who are in Christ. We talked a lot about grace this morning, but as we close, I encourage you really to understand from the Bible itself that God tells us that this, li- this universe literally exists so that God's grace can be displayed. And so God not only is gracious, not only does he love to be gracious, but the grace of God is literally why we in the universe exist, so that the glory of his grace can be put on display. So that's good news. Because that means that if you're in Christ, you can take comfort that God loves to be incredibly gracious to you. He created the entire universe and has things the way they are so that he could be gracious to his people. And so this means that although you might cry in his arms, he will always hold you tighter and tighter, day in and day out. And although you might daily sin and paint dark spots on the canvas of your life, he, with a smile, will always come and paint more beautifully over it. And he will then even enable you to live more like his son. And why? Why does he treat us sinners like this? Because he loves to be kind to to us. 
because he loves to treat you and I better than we deserve because he's a God of grace. Let's pray.